You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to be speaking virtually with Sumita Chakraborty. Sumita, what, welcome to our virtual space. <laughs> Thank you so much, T. It's so great to be here or there or wherever I am. <laughs> no. Well, where where are you speaking to us from? Um, I'm speaking yeah. to you from my home here in Ann Arbor in this little um, office studio type space we've got in our apartment. Oh, wonderful. And are you seeing the um, the beautiful sunset? I am, yeah. It's kind of dropping from my windows now, but just before um, when we were praying to the tech gods, yeah, it was really <laughs> radiant and stunning. <laughs> Completely. I know. Thank you, tech gods. Thank you, tech gods, and thank you, sunset. Um, right. <laughs> and, and I should say we're, we're taping this um, together on November 19th, 2020. Um, and before, before we get to the conversation, I'll read... Uh, the short bio and on the back of your book of poems, Arrow, out with Alice James Books. Sumita Chakraborty is a poet, essayist, and scholar. Her poems have appeared in Poetry, American Poetry Review, The Best American Poetry 2019 and elsewhere, and her essays and articles appear or are forthcoming in the Los Angeles Review of Books, Cultural Critique, Modernism, Modernity, College Literature, and Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and the Environment, among others. Formerly poetry editor of Agni Magazine and art editor of At Length, she holds a BA from Wellesley College and a PhD from Emory University. She was the recipient of a Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation and has been shortlisted for a Forward Prize. Originally from Massachusetts, she now lives in Michigan, where she is Helen Zell, visiting professor in poetry at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. So, Sumita, welcome once again. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, I've been so looking forward to having the chance to talk with you about your wonderful book of poems. Um, as, That's as, really kind of you to say. And and it's in September 2020. That's when they were launched into the world. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and what a into launch a, it was, into right? Into a world it was not anticipating, but in some ways kind of always was. <laughs> yeah. Could you, so could you, it could, yeah, why, because I, I think that I understand why you're saying that. Can you kind of fill us in like? <laughs> yeah, of course. So, um as far as didn't anticipate, I think that's the easier logistical part to answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, with everything going virtual, you know, um, 
that's a completely different environment, atmosphere, and mechanism that that requires for sharing your work with other people. And I do love traveling. I do love hanging out with folks in person. So I had been very, very eager for that part of the whole book release process. So kind of reorienting my idea of what that experience would be and, you know, what unexpected possibilities it could also open up. That was certainly um, a whole journey, as they say. <laughs> right. In terms of what the book did anticipate arrowing into, not to be too punny, right off the jump. I love um, it. The book is very much about living in the aftermath of a bunch of kinds of violence and also um, acknowledging that that aftermath is never really a true after, but also that there is um, joy and love and kinship in the world that warrants being worked toward and warrants embracing. So all of those things have been only more keenly on my mind in whatever the, the roving dumpster fire that is 2020 has has <laughs> been. Um, so that's the part of the, the year that I feel like in some ways the speaker and the moods and the tones of the book really do anticipate. Yes, and 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 you are doing um, virtual book tours, and you know, the, I love that we can hear the train too. I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is a full sonic experience. Everyone it really is. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Could, how has it been um, with? I don't know. Doing doing those the virtual parts of the tour and. Yeah, it's been surprisingly great. I mean, um, I feel like I now completely live in a computer, which is not the great part. But the part that is great is that when I realized that an in-person book tour would be impossible, I started trying to put together a tour that really defied the logic of space and time. So <laughs> it's been kind of delightful. Like I'll be in Ann Arbor on one second, I'll be in Seattle in like 30 minutes after that, you know, and there are things that would be physically impossible to do in the real physical world. Um, Although I guess we're still in the real physical world, but you know what I mean. Oh, and it's I been know. kind of enjoyable to stretch those boundaries. Oh, completely. I love that you mentioned Seattle as one of the um, as, as one of the stops, um, probably at Elliott Bay Book Company. It was actually Open Books Poetry Emporium. <gasps> oh, oh, beautiful. I, yeah. Oh, oh, shout out to Open Books. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, shout out to Elliott Bay, too. I had a chance to do a physical reading there once, um, but I was very, very honored that myself uh, and two other poets were Open Books' first own virtual event. Oh, wow. Oh, that's great. Well, I bet it was... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to have missed it. I know, know it must have been a smashing success. <laughs> oh, gosh. There's just way too much stuff going on. You know, that's the other downside of this. I feel like now... Um, I want to be at so many things at so many times, and I've kind of forgotten that there are still only 24 hours left in a day. Um, it's a hidden blessing of the whole virtual thing that now um, I feel like so many events are more accessible financially um, and location-wise, but also it really makes you feel as though you could potentially be attending a reading or a lecture at any given moment. <laughs> Because you really could be. You really could be, yeah. yeah. It's a bit overwhelming. Except you're still a human with other stuff to do and a finite amount of time and you need to eat and sleep and all that stuff. So, <laughs> Yes, amen. I know. It's so, uh, well, let's, let's talk about, let's talk about Arrow. Um, 
I I love that in um, when the book came, there was uh, also uh, like a, sh- a short essay included um, that's not part of the book, although there are acknowledgments and notes as part of Arrow um, as well. Um, but but there, a, a piece of paper came with the book, um, a, a message, an essay from you that Alice James Books had included. And I love, Sumita, how you um, how you, you lead off with um, Arrow is a mission statement, an exploration of personal and national histories and a contentious love letter to a flawed world. <laughs> Got a little dramatic in that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, I think it's, you're exactly right. That was just so beautiful. And I loved it. And I loved that it was like, um, I don't know, it was like a manifesto for the book. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad that resonated with you. Um, yeah, the idea of love is really important to this book. And I grappled a lot with how to portray what kind and what tones of love it was, because I think that so much of the book also deals with sadness and grief um, and trauma that I didn't want whatever love I spoke to to appear as though it was in the interest of redeeming suffering. You know, I hate um, the American party line, right? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, that's not true at all. And um, I wanted to make sure to honor both pain and love in a way that didn't negate either one or make one of them seem like it was in service of the other. That is so important, isn't it? It's not in service of the other. Right. (laughs) And, you know, sometimes they can even compete with one another and they don't sit easily next to one another at all. Um, You know, in, in autobiographically in terms of the personal stories underneath the book um i am a survivor of domestic violence so for me the idea of love and kinship and joy and all of that personally were weaponized against me from the very beginning of my life so it hasn't been a particularly easy journey at all coming to terms with even the act of embracing love and and happiness so i would never want it to be like um what I went through has somehow made me or led me to love or, or led me to a better sense of love or anything like that. It's um, choosing and, and learning how to be able to love various things is an active, uh, challenging, rigorous day-to-day activity. Um, so that's really what I was trying to get across with those lines. Oh, completely, Sumita. It's... Can we talk about how you chose the epigraph for Arrow by yes. Frank Bidart? Of course, yeah. Um, well, that it was actually, a, I went back and forth on it. Frank Bedart was my first ever poetry teacher. Um, yeah, I went to Wellesley for my bachelor's and he teaches there. And I, I don't know, I, I wrote very, very badly then. I mean, I wrote really, really terrible, terrible poems. And somehow by the grace of the muses that I do not even believe in, um, Frank was kind enough to work with me um, and help me write things that were very slowly, marginally less terrible than the things that I had written right before. <laughs> Sumita, I hear you. I mean, <laughs> oh you're not alone. I know. I know. Yeah. When my students talk to me now and they're like, oh, I'm worried this isn't very good. I'm like, I really should have tried to save the horrible things that I wrote that I basically discarded or burned with fire as soon as earthly possible. <laughs> because if you saw how I started, it would make you feel so much better about yourself. 
Yeah, so, I often think that about the students. I'm like, they're so advanced. <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> I was still digging in the dirt under a tree somewhere. Oh, know. yeah, absolutely. I was hideous. My students are all better than I was at their stage. <laughs> okay, wait, this is not what this hour is about. No, <laughs> technically not. No. <laughs> so yeah, I went back and forth on whether I wanted to use those lines because it's a weighty thing, right? Having your first teacher's lines be the epigraph of your debut book. I didn't want to be too, you know, um, anxiety of influence about the whole thing. But those three lines are are really one of the primary ways in which I think about how this book is an arrow, world with this arrow, ivy wed. The book is about coming to terms with wanting to be and caring about being a part of the world which is a very it was a very surprising thing for me personally to learn that I even wanted I spent a great deal of my adolescence and and uh, early half 20s or whatever um feeling as though I wanted no part of any aspect of living that I had yet been introduced to so the gesture of being able in the aftermath to say okay I don't really have the greatest relationship with my past. I'm a little tenuous about my present, and I don't know what on earth the future will be. The world is still pretty terrible, but it's also pretty wonderful. And being able to look at all those things together and um, express faith or fealty to the world was something that I really wanted this book to get across as a whole. Sumida, then, is it have these poems been with you for for almost like this this length of time then because I, I mean well you were joking about how um the early poems <laughs> are not to be found anywhere <laughs> and and but have these poems also been like from that time since Wellesley or oh that's an interesting question so there are let's see Hmm. First of all, no, there's nothing in here from college at all. But there are a few um, kind of phrases or brief references or brief sentences that I have rescued from poems from early on in my time in grad school, I'd say, maybe around uh, 2015 or so. I think that's about as far back as that can go in terms of tracing how old some of these little bits are. You know, I I wrote and rewrote this book um, about seven times. It took me about a decade to get it right, and prior versions were so different from this version in part because what I was trying to do was tell exactly that story of being in the aftermath and embracing something more and something else. And I wasn't yet in a position to be able to tell that story because I hadn't lived enough of it yet. You know what I mean? Um, So there are a few phrases to go to speak to your question about the poems in particular. Um, For example, let me find it. There's an early poem in the book. It's called Most of the Children Who Lived in This House Are Dead. As a child, I lived here, therefore I am dead. And in that poem, which is, for listeners, this is about a three and a half page uh, quasi-prose poem. And in one of the sections I write, um, let's see, the girl wrote, in the end you will inherit only the finest silence or the darkest retreat. That italicized line, in the end you will inherit only the finest silence or the darkest retreat, is probably the oldest thing 
in the book. It used to be part of a much longer poem that was very, very terrible. That was the only salvageable line. <laughs> and I worked it into that one poem. I love that. I mean, and I love the line and that it's italicized and it, that you can so clearly point to it as an artifact of this other time. And it's one of the, it's in figure five, one of the children visits the museum. The children was me. <laughs> and she did indeed visit the museum. Yeah, I found a way to locate some of those old little tiny scraps that are that were interesting to me from old poems that were no longer interesting to me and occasionally work them into places where I am trying to kind of directly speak to what that prior version of myself was thinking or feeling. When you mentioned grad school, because in the in your bio, we know that you have a, a PhD, but were you also going for, were, were you in for creative writing? Were you in? That's like, <laughs> like such a, <laughs> such a sentence or something. I don't know. Academia is beautiful thing. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> well, that would take another several hours to go through. But yeah. I know that is another, that is a, another episode down the line. <laughs> Always happy to do real talk about academia, but to answer your other question, no, I don't have a creative writing graduate degree. I have a, a scholarly PhD in English, um, as well as a grad certificate in women's gender and sexuality studies. Let's, so we're from this one line, Sumita, we, we see, we can see the narrator and now we know you, the poet, as a little girl in a museum. Did you find writing poems once you got to undergrad or had you been as a kid were you writing frag uh, when did you start loving poems if if it's not too much to assume that you do <laughs> it's not at all and I do although um you know sometimes it's a bit more of uh, on the hate side of the love-hate relationship but yes it's a struggle. I do <laughs> it's a struggle yeah. yeah absolutely uh no it really happened for me in college um I'm sure before that I wrote some fragments of some things, um, but I'm I'm not someone who has one of those really remarkable stories of, you know, like when I was seven, I wrote this great poem and, oh, I've got it saved in this notebook, right? I'm so jealous of people who have that. Um, for me, for my whole childhood and adolescence, um, I think that those kinds of self-discovery were not things that were encouraged for me. Um, due to domestic violence um and they weren't also things that i had the headspace to really contemplate also due to domestic violence that really structured my entire life until um i left and until i went to college and it was in frank's workshop as well as an upper level seminar called studies in shakespeare um that i kind of got the bug for all the literary work and it wasn't because i was good at it at all it was actually the exact opposite i was writing what i knew were trite and cliche and horrible poems in frank's workshop and um when i got to that advanced shakespeare class um for which i skipped a prerequisite by the way this was in the days when it was a little easier to skip a prerequisite and i don't know why i did that i certainly didn't think i was very good or qualified for advanced but i just kind of went for it. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even know really what literary argumentation was like at the time. The first essay prompt I was given confused the living daylights out of me. I think that it was a combination of a few things. One was that 
my professor for that course, as well as Frank in the workshop, were incredibly kind um, and incredibly patient and dedicated toward helping me figure out what's what um, and get a sense of, of how to make stuff happen on the page. That really went a very, very long way. And then I realized that both writing about literature and trying to write literature were things that even though I was not good at them, they were puzzles that I really wanted to crack. Like they were things that I didn't quite understand, but badly wanted to learn how to understand or even flail around in. I remember early on thinking, you know, even if I never write a good paper, I will enjoy having flopped around in the mud trying. So I think that's really what, what got me started. And, and from then on, it was basically just hook, line and sinker. This, this origin story, Sumita, it's, it's like a real writer. This is an, an origin story. It's, it's beautiful. That's kind. <laughs> also love the flopping about in the mud. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, that's about, I mean, not not afraid to be in the making of it, no matter what it is. Like, there's going to be mud, right? Like, now now I'm, see, now I'm ruining it. I'm making it like. No, I think it's a, great. It's a, getting like, better. <laughs> <laughs> I love how Arrow has, it feels like, obviously, these are all these poems that are of your voice, like getting to know Sumita Chakraborty on the, in Arrow, but there's so many different shapes and ways they move and vessels that they're in, because even in the poem that we were just, we were, um, God, I love that title too, so I can't even say it off the top of my head because it's a long title, but I love like there's figure one and then these, you said these sort of prose poems, which are prose poems, and it's like a whole series, a sequence of them in that that poem. And then we've got the use of the white space and on the page and then these long, these blocks of pro, like uh, lyrical lines and essay on and oh spirit uh, like yeah it's just wonderful thank you and then and then also the poem that um i believe it's called windows that that the fragments is, yeah is after rilke's but is a poem for your sister that's right it was so interesting in the notes to read about the process of how you came to this do you mind talking about some of the ways you work and maybe starting with windows Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. So Windows um, really was not a poem that I foresaw generating when I was generating the material for it. After my sister died in 2014, I found myself not really able to think in, in coherent words really at all. Um, yes. I kind of lost for a good bit the ability to generate syntax. And I mean, both prose and poetry. Um, I was reading a great deal, but in terms of anything that I tried to produce, nothing was really happening. Um, that happened during a summer while I was in grad school, and I've always been kind of a, a practical person, so I was looking at the calendar and I was thinking, well, um, the semester is about to start. I'm probably going to need to know how words work. <laughs> considering oh. I'm oh. in a doctoral program for English. So I started translating and um, 
the German poet Rainer Maria Rilke, toward the end of his life, wrote like 200, 300 poems in French. Now, I don't have German, but I do have French. So I started looking at those late poems and just kind of translating them. Um, and then I put them away for the most part because I did not want to publish them as translations and um, I don't feel very equipped to call myself a translator. I haven't really done much of that work and that, that would be quite the overreach. Um, so I just kind of sat on them. And then a few years later, I came across them again. You know, I periodically reread over old things that I'm no longer, or that I think I'm no longer interested in, just in case something shakes loose or I'm in a new kind of uh, state of mind to be able to greet something better. And I started looking at those old translations and fragments started jumping out to me. So I began to make erasure poems out of my own translations and to change words sometimes and alter syntax and move them around on the page. And out of that process, I ended up with 52 very short fragments, which I strung together into the poem that is now Windows. I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss of your sister. Thank you. I appreciate that. Seeing it in this way possible because it was a way of um, um oh of uh, communicating grief. with her somehow yeah yes. or being in grief yeah no i understand what you're asking sort of um i think you know what really had to happen so in terms of the chronology of this book um the first thing i did was write my sister's death into the end of marigolds which is the long poem that begins the book yeah. After that, I spent about two-ish years slowly writing the long poem, Dear Beloved, which is the second, I, there's four long poems in here for any listeners out there. Um, I apologize. You can throw rocks if you want. <laughs> the, the second one is a, is a long single stanza. It's about a 12-page single stanza poem called Dear Beloved. Yes. And Dear Beloved, that name, the title of that poem comes from the English language translation of my sister's Sanskrit origin name. Her name was Priya, and in English that means Dear Beloved. So through writing Dear Beloved, what I really wanted to do was capture something not not only in the, mo in the mode of elegy, but something that talks a little bit about how grief is a process of thinking and feeling and knowing. It's not just one feeling that you feel, it's a state of mind and a state of being that you can inhabit fully and that has its own parameters and contours and philosophies and physics. So I think it was actually writing through that, it was writing through Dear Beloved that allowed me to re-see the translations that became the fragments of Windows. Because although, you know, much of this book is about grief and is about thinking about the loss of my sister, I think that those fragments wouldn't have jumped out to me um, without the experience of having really thought about what grief logic can mean, which is what Dear Beloved was really a project in considering. Grief logic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the way um, grief isn't, like I just said, um, isn't just something that you can feel at one point or move through, but, but it's something that you can inhabit and think along with and, and think alongside, and it lets you really 
and I, again, I'm cautious here because I don't want to make it sound overly redemptive, right? Like suffer a horrible loss and then see what you learn. That's terrible. And that's not what I would ever want to get across at all. No, but, but you're me, changed by it. Like, yeah. I think that's what I'm hearing with this is, and it's also not something that's over because it's different. Right. That's exactly right. And once you pass through it in a way that happens to be incredibly meaningful for you, if you do have that experience, it can shape and alter and rework the way you think about things on an almost cellular level. And that's what Dear Beloved is really about. You know, every single aspect of the world of that poem is altered by the grief. Every relation is reconsidered, not necessarily for the worse, not necessarily for the better, but things are fundamentally transfigured or transformed. And I think in a way, taking that general philosophy and applying it to craft, that transfiguration allowed me to see what could be transfigured in the translations that I wrote simply to get myself to start thinking in syntax again. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing that. Of course. I mean it when I say I'm an open book, by the way. None of these topics are off limits. <laughs> oh. Dear Beloved is, like you mentioned, it's, it's, it's a, a, a beautifully long poem. Is there a piece of it? Would you feel? Yeah, of course. Sure. I've, I've done excerpts for it from time to time. Um, I don't think you want me to read the whole thing. I have done it once. That was a rem It was one of my favorite reading experiences. There's a, a poetry festival over in the UK. It's called Verve Poetry Festival. And they brought me out there a couple years ago to do a few events. And one of the events was a full reading of Dear Beloved. Oh. I was so nervous because there was nobody else who had heard that. I had not done that out loud for anyone except for my cats. Wow. And my cats are obligated to like what I do and also don't know English. So that probably really helps. <laughs> and I was like, I've never forced anyone else to sit through this thing in full. How will it go? But I had a great time. I think the attendees enjoyed it too. It was one of the most magnificent experiences I've had reading work. Um, but it takes about 50 minutes or so. So I don't think I'm going to do that to you. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely have to make this a part one, a part two, a part three. <laughs> yeah, that would be join me for a multiple installment reading of my very long elegy. <laughs> You'll have like less than one listener. It, it might be a cat. <laughs> no, but I, I love that in this, the speaking of it, in this place at the Verve Festival to a visible people like audience, right? Did it, did it change how you were in the words? I don't know that it changed it, but it taught me a lot about, um, things that I know I considered when I was writing it, but become more palpable when <clears throat> become more palpable when you express it. For example, the poem has many kind of introspective asides or meandering into different modes of thought and there are some transitions there that are quieter or more private or more doubting juxtaposed with articulations that are meant to be more outward or public or about something external and i knew that already and um, that was consciously written in but i think 
speaking it out loud it, it's sort of like when you see in a play a character in the middle of a dialogue with other people break off and do kind of an aside to the audience or utter something private yes. going through their mind and I really became aware as I was reading it about how much of that was happening in this poem um, and of different ways in which I could use my voice and my body to, to articulate those differences. Is there a place in the poem that you felt was especially cool or that you wanted to hear from? Oh, thank you so much for offering. But I I have this thing where I, I really try not to ask for <laughs> okay. poems. I do, because I want to know what you want to read. I promise this won't be like 50 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Living Writers. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let me take a sip of coffee first. Sister, I know neither goodness nor mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, as surely as I know the beasts I inherit or create, of all unions, familial or otherwise, are speechless and brute and bound to die soon. Yes, there is much to love about the body. Two, there is much to hate. I cast off care for pleasure and for labor, teaching my body over time that these things can't exist. I fear it has started to believe me. My body has never sought wholeness the way yours did, sister. It was always still the dull twilight of early morning with us. You were 24, and when you died, I stopped fearing arson. When I picture us as girls, we are at the base of the mountain from my visio, divining the summit as we diminish into spots of light. We are without parentage. On my mountaintop in mid-afternoons, flocks of wheeling birds gather around the crescent moon. When the moon worms its way through the clouds, it fixes its eyes on me and sings a song that says we live our lives chained to earth and that when we die the flesh falls off our bones so our bones can turn into the driest of riverbed dirt sister when you died your bones cast an enchantment we made a powder of them and i named the powder ash because ash is a word with neither origin nor afterlife and its definition is the look a doe gets when she's been away from her herd too long when a person goes missing and we don't know her name we grant her the surname Doe. With this christening, we name all missing persons part of the family of Ash that has no family. Sometimes I think that each speck of Ash, previously named Priya, hums on quiet nights in a frequency only the other pieces can hear, inaudible to the waking world she hums to herself. That hum is how my blood became blue. In lieu of oxygen, my body began to breathe in only the vibrations of the hum. Blood has to be born into its colors. Or, more precisely, it has to die into them. Thank you. Sure, thanks for asking. Sumita, why, why did you choose that part to read to us? You know, that is a perfectly natural question to ask, but for some reason, I don't think I anticipated it. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, one thing that drew me to this particular part of the poem today is just that I've re realized that I don't often 
articulate my sister's name. You know, when I talk about her, I say, my sister died and so and so. Um, and that's not really a conscious decision. And it's also certainly not for any kind of overarching reason. Um, but I think that one thing that has really stood out to me in these last few months while I've been talking about this book is so much of what I discuss has to do with my grief and my experience and the way in which my grief and my experience taught me to know and learn different things. But sometimes I feel like the real girl has kind of fallen out um, of the conversation. And in some ways that's fine. You know, uh, my sister is not even around to consent or not consent to having many details about her person or her personal life made broadly available, right? So the book is about me and my grief of her and my experience with domestic violence. So it's right that I should be on the hot seat, so to speak. But the poem is named for her. Um, and I feel like even though there is a little trick of language going on there where it's named after the definition um, of her name, she is still there and she is the one that this poem is about. So I think I gravitated toward that section both because it starts with an address to her and by putting myself on the hot seat with that sister, I know neither goodness nor mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. But it's also a portion of the poem where her human real life name does come in. And I think that resonated with me today. Thank you for choosing this part. There was a part of me that I felt the moment when you were going to stop and I almost didn't, I just didn't want you to. I know we were joking about it, but I was just like, <laughs> Sumita, just go, just do it. Just read, read, stay in the poem, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, thank you for that. That's definitely the kind of reaction you want people to have when you're trying to make them write, read a 12 page single stanza. So, so thank you. How did you know how you wanted this book to move when you were putting it together? Yeah. Essentially, the basic stru structure, I thought of it as, so it's in four parts, and I wanted there to be one long poem in each part, and that long poem would kind of serve as the heart or the spine or, you know, insert organ here of that particular part, and then the rest of the short poems in that section would flesh out different explorations or tendrils that were also relevant to the speaker at that particular stage in the emotional overarching emotional narrative arc of the book. And the way I think about that overarching narrative arc is that the beginning of the book finds the speaker in, yes, definitely in the aftermath of a great deal of violence, but still feeling quite close to those traumas in many, many ways. So in Marigolds, you have um, a speaker who is learning how to take up space for the first time and learning how to articulate anger. And there are many declarations that come along with doing so, both in that poem and in that first section that are not declarations that I would stand by ethically and emotionally in my present day life. You know, um, one of the short O oh Spirit poems from that section is, to help myself rise in the morning, I make a promise. Someday I will cause as much pain as I feel. Yes. No, I won't. I don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I most certainly did at certain points feel that way. So the speaker starts from that position of, of starting to be able to say I and, and wanting to be able to almost lash out and make incursions on the broader world um, in any way that she can. 
then by the over the course of the rest of the book, it's really a matter of redefining, reprocessing, and redrawing the map of the world. So that I hope that readers find that by the end of the book, it's not really a, a particularly redemptive arc or anything like that, but the speaker has kind of come to terms with the world outside of themselves and, and the way that they can impact it and be impacted by it in a way that is a little bit less, you know, um, sword sing swinging than that first <laughs> section a lot of the time. Um, so that was, that was the story that I wanted to tell. And the long poems are ways that I kind of anchor, I think, large developments in that overarching uh, narrative. And the littler poems, or the shorter or other poems, kind of flesh that narrative out or, or push it along in, in various ways. We've seen then the, the speaker changing, and now it's not just for in this world, but in Arrow, it's also the the multiplicity of worlds. And you even you have NASA in the epigraph. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So there are actually two title poems here. Um, one of them is that um, it's a persona poem voiced in the voice of Nix, and I'll talk about that a little bit more. That's the one with, with NASA as the epigraph. Um, and then there's that long, it's kind of a triple sestina of sorts turned into a sectioned poem called Arrow that, that expands on those themes a little bit more as well. Um, I think, so one way to think about this, that line from NASA that's the epigraph to the persona poem, Arrow, worlds such as this were not thought possible to exist. I introduced that in the book actually in Marigolds. So um, let me find it. <laughs> in Marigolds, it first comes up uh, toward the end of the poem, here nothing breathes but we phased and hungry, oh wondrous thing. Worlds such as this were not thought possible to exist, writes the astronomer. It is June. Deep beneath those golden waves of the river I'll be found. My sister has joined the list of those I mourn. Then it comes back toward the very end of this poem as well again. As the stag, I fear the mouth of the rifle. As the rifle, I point my mouth deadly toward you. As the hunter, I execute myself so I may feast. Worlds such as this were not thought possible mm. to exist. Mm. My lord, I am a mile beyond the honeyed moon. So then when I bring it back in Arrow, the persona poem of Nyx, you know, um, frequently throughout the book in various moments when the speaker feels particularly low or besieged or um, deep in grief, the speaker calls out to Nyx, who is the Greek titan of night. And part of the preoccupation of the way this book thinks about the the speaker's journey is the consideration of scale you know early in in the book the speaker feels herself to be everywhere and feels everything to be colliding or brought to bear upon her but it really is true that there are a variety of different scales on which things are felt differently there are large scales of massive trauma and pain and huge advance uh, or huge vantages of space-time. Um, there's entire galaxies with, with circles of gravity that I and the speaker certainly have no way of knowing. 
So I got to thinking as I was writing this book, you know, what would it be for, or how would Nix take it to be called upon for these kinds of individual mortal griefs, as massive as they might feel to me? They're tiny on the scale of the cosmoses that my speakers frequently think about them through the parameters of. So toward the end of the book, um, in both the long poem arrow and the persona poem arrow, the latter of which is the one for which I use that NASA line again as the epigraph, I'm thinking, what does it mean to say worlds such as this were not thought possible to exist? You know, which worlds, by whom, who is that voiced by, and, and who is listening to that articulation, and how do its stakes shift based on who is on either end of that line? Um, the persona poem, Arrow, Nix is really quite scolding me. Like, she's, she's not too thrilled <laughs> with having been called upon to deal with these little mortal problems. <laughs> I was really caught in what I was thinking of as the the moon, like what I thought were the phases of the moon as yes. the parts of delineating these or, or accompanying each of these poems that are then part of the second arrow. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the second poem arrow, that's it. I thought of it as a long poem in sections with each section on its own page essentially, so here's how it came to be. I wanted to write a Sestina for the end of the book, and I wanted to do that because I feel like the Sestina really drives home circularity, obsession, repetition, and memory, which were a few things that I really wanted the book to kind of lodge itself in as it rolled toward its final moments. But the Sestina repeats only six words. Yeah. So I wrote down six words and I was like, well, that's that's not enough words. <laughs> so then I wrote down six more and I still didn't feel like that were that was quite enough in terms of the sorts of obsessions and the, and the key words that I wanted to think about at the end of the book. Then I wrote down another six and I'm like, okay, now I have 18 words and it kind of feels like it's both rigorously limiting and broad enough to be of interest. So I wrote three different sestinas, um, and I gave each of them. A sestina also has a concluding stanza called an envoy. It's a three-line stanza that uses some of the preceding repeating words. Um, each sestina of mine, when I was drafting this, ended up with two envoys, because much like in the process of picking words in general, I felt like just one was not quite enough. Um, but I didn't want to publish them just side by side or sequentially. They really seemed like they were talking to one another. So I pulled them apart stanza by stanza. Each stanza is a different section of the new long poem now, and they're all kind of interwoven in that way. I think for me, I really enjoy um, having a, a firm sense of what the back of the tapestry looks like. But then if readers don't feel like or don't end up experiencing the back of the tapestry, that's fine with me, too. <laughs> yeah, the back of the tapestry. I'm sure I've said the phrase before, and I'm sure I've stolen it from someone that I don't even remember now. But um, yeah, I've used that metaphor sometimes when talking about kind of the difference between what we perceive when we're looking at or reading or experiencing a poem and what we know went into it from the back end. I think it helps both from a craft angle and from a literary interpretation angle, because even when we're interpreting a poem, right, we can never really get to any sense of what the author may or may not have intended. That's the back of the tapestry. That's their jam. What we can do is we can read the tapestry. So I think that it, for me, it's a helpful metaphor to think about kind of the different 
positions that maker and reader and interpreter are all in in relation to the poem. <laughs> so an- another another part of the making that I thought was was seemed really really cool and interesting is that I hope you don't mind that I'm focusing so much on how the making of these different kinds of poems that are in Arrow. Not at all. Anita, I hope. Let's see. No, it's fun for me to talk about. <laughs> um, I've got so many things dog-eared here that it's actually no longer effective. Sadly. Thank you. That's the um, kindest thing you could have possibly said. I'm a notorious, unrelenting dog earer. So, <laughs> oh, you too. You too. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes we are hated, and sometimes, but as long as it's our books, right? It's okay. Um, I know it well, and I'm going to go ahead and plead the fifth on whether or not I've ever done it to a library book. Oh, no comment. No comment. <laughs> I I didn't even say anything. It's fine. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Don't worry, we won't tell. <laughs> so in back towards the middle of the book, basic questions, mm. which is such a, it's like such a brilliant title, especially when you have the first line of the poem. Um, <laughs> what was the experience, experience of death like for you? The, the <laughs> idea that that would be like the leading basic question, right? Right. So, and I, I was so interested in this because when I read it, I thought, like a Ouija board, <laughs> but but when, yes. by the time you get to the the notes in the back, you you say you tell you're telling some of the stories, some of behind the tapestry moments yep. um, for the reader. And there's Lucille Clifton's spirit writing. Indeed, yeah. So I can't actually take credit for that title as I wrote in my notes. I mean, I guess I can, but only in the sense that I had a good sense that it was something that I should quote from someone else. Um, Lucille Clifton spent several years of her life communicating with dead spirits over a Ouija board and also through the process of automatic writing. And I work on these as a scholar. Um, they're forming really the, the backbone and the theoretical framework of my in-process um, scholarly manuscript. And one of the things that I find so, well, there's a lot that I find very, very fascinating about them. But one of the details that jumped out to me from the beginning was that when she communicated with these spirits, and, and it was a range of people, by the way, um, family members for sure, and spiritual figures also, but also just um, other famous writers or, or famous celebrities. I mean, uh, Clyde Barrow of Bonnie and Clyde fame is one of the people who she spoke to in the afterlife. I mean, Billie Holiday, Bessie Smith. Oh. Um, yeah, she had a really extensive list of spirit correspondence. And in order to communicate with them and to structure her communications with them, one of the things she did in one of her series of interviews with the dead was use the, a questionnaire that she had written up called basic questions. And these are indeed those self-same basic questions, as I mentioned in the notes. Um, what was the experience of death like for you? At what moment did you know there was an existence beyond Earth? Or that word could also be death. Um, there's a little bit of a irregularity in the manuscript. And um, a scholar in the field of literature and the environment, Lynn Keller, kindly pointed out to me at a conference once that there 
that that ambiguity could also mean at what moment did you know there was an existence beyond death? So every single one of those italicized questions are ripped straight from her questionnaire with the spirit correspondence that she spoke to. Um, and I really just took it from there. <laughs> the in-progress scholarly book you mentioned, is it is the title still Grave Danger? It is. And that question, that um, main title comes from Clifton as well. Her spirit communications were really extensive of their own accord, but they also sometimes influenced her writing, um, as in the poem Message from the Ones, for example. Some of the spirits she talked to were mysterious kind of uh, spiritual entities called the Ones, and um, they would often give her prophetic messages or instructions, and some of those turned into a long poem of Clifton's own. The phrase grave danger comes from them. I definitely now also have to read because I love Lucille Clifton, but now I feel like maybe I need to read even more to love further. <laughs> yeah, the spirit writing materials are, are fairly new in the reading public's consciousness. The archives were only recently unsealed. Those were um, really people started beginning to be able to access them the summer after I graduated um, from my PhD program. So that material is only now kind of making its way out into the world. But yeah, just in general, I can't more strongly recommend enough spending time with Clifton. Well, what I was thinking was that this book was probably connected to your doctoral thesis, but maybe that's that's not true. Oh, no, it wasn't. Um, I mean, it is in that I have a few preoccupations that I'm obsessed with all the time. <laughs> and I write about them in any possible genre. Well done, you. Yeah, That's pretty much it. Um, but no, for my uh, PhD program, I wrote a scholarly dissertation. It was about um, ethics and poetry in the Anthropocene, and how poetics can kind of help us reframe or recast classical ethical dilemmas when it comes to this unwieldy thing we call the Anthropocene. Um, that is the basis for my scholarly book. Uh, it has changed in many ways from my dissertation and is all the better for it, I think, and I hope. But um, the poetry book did not directly come out of that process. I was writing that. I was writing Arrow um, alongside writing my dissertation in grad school. Yes. And are you writing, are you writing poems now? I am, yeah. Um, I'm writing some new stuff toward a second book. I don't yet know what shape that book will take, um, but I have two ongoing series. One of them is a series of visual poems, actually. They're inspired by... Um, well, let me back up a bit. They are visual poems. In, in 2018, I had a hysterectomy, and at that time, I asked my surgeon to send me photographs of the procedure from the inside yeah he was he was pretty horrified but he did it <laughs> there is and there's a poem in here with that too yes that's right it's actually basic questions is where i mentioned that oh is oh, okay <laughs> yeah okay. <laughs> sorry i feel like my brain is a bit fuzzy I know that poem. Yes, it's because your finger, your thumb is still on the page here. <laughs> yeah, that's where I mention it. And um, that's kind of like the mentions of that in Arrow are kind of the prequels. And what oh. I'm doing now is that I'm writing visual poems in the shape inspired by, in a shape inspired by the picture-in-picture -picture format of my surgeon's endoscopic photographs of my hysterectomy. 
So that's one wackadoo thing that's happening. Um, The other is a series of prose poems. Do you know what the golden records were? No. Okay, so in 1977, NASA sent up a Challenger mission, two Challenger missions, I think, actually. Yes, I do know. But sorry, go, please. No, that's fine. No apologies needed. Um, And on those records or on those missions were the golden records, which were intended as kind of like a this is what humanity is. They included photographs of stuff on Earth. They included um, audio clips of people saying hello in a range of different languages, different songs, uh, different noises like humans chewing and whatnot. (laughs) Um, And they shot them up into space. The idea, as vocalized by Jimmy Carter, who was president at the time, was that if there were any extraterrestrials out there who got a hold of these records, I guess they assumed that the extraterrestrials would be able to play vinyl or whatever. Exactly. They would have, they would have like, to- oh, yeah, we'll just pop this in our record player. Way back in the technology, right? Yeah. Right. In any case, they were supposed to listen to the records and be like, oh, yeah, this is what humans are all about. <laughs> They're so- all right. They're not too bad. So accordingly, they leave out quite a lot, and they leave out, the records leave out a great deal um, for some mundane and bureaucratic reasons, like copyright restrictions, and they also leave stuff out for some more complex, weird reasons, like um, no sounds of guns or sounds of bombs, because they didn't want the aliens to think that we were coming to get them. And of course, outside of that, they also leave out a great deal, because the committee that picked everything on these records were... I think entirely white and overwhelmingly male. Mm -hmm. So my series of poems is, uh, that series is all called the B sides of the golden (laughs) records. I love that track, whatever. (laughs) And then there's a colon and a subtitle that names the tracks. So what I'm trying to think through is, is what we wouldn't want to put on a record to represent ourselves to extraterrestrials. Oh my gosh. I love it. So those are the two series of poems I'm working on right now, um, and a couple. There's a sonnet cycle that I have in the works that I not enough of it is done to be able to even tell you what it's about quite yet. <laughs> but um, that's basically what's going on on the on the poetry writing side. What's serious fun then? That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I've really enjoyed it, and it's allowed me to open up a few avenues for humor, especially in the B-Sides poems uh, that I haven't really been able to engage in before. I have never really been a very successful funny poet, and I don't think I still am, but there are some moments in the B-Sides that are by definition a little bit more lighthearted than a great deal of the work that I'm doing in Arrow and that I do in the hysterectomy poems, for example. So it's been fun to kind of tap into that alternate tone. Could you read one of the B-side poems, Sumita? Totally. I actually have a printout here from a reading I did yesterday. I'll read you the first one. Great. The B-sides of the golden records, track one, the canary flies toward the mine. Once there was a patch of moss on a fallen tree trunk. We ran our hands through it. We sat on it. When we did so, we crushed the spores. We crushed insects. Once, whenever we saw an insect, we'd swat it or smush it in a wad of toilet paper. How to trap and kill an insect can sometimes be an entire plot point in our romantic comedies. We sometimes make lovely romantic comedies. Once we made crackers and cookies in all kinds of shapes, elephants, lions, circles, stars. We have trouble believing anything is real unless we can swallow it. 
More than once, we have poisoned the water. We are so very afraid that you will think we are trying to hurt you. We are so very sorry we could not send you. Here comes the sun. It was written in a garden where there were purple and yellow flowers and a windmill and moss. What we need is for you to listen to our arias, our ragas, and our syncopations, and to think that we are worthy of saving, or at least deserving of a gentle vigil. We would also like if you could look at our demonstrations of licking, eating, and drinking, <laughs> and tell us how we work. Once we touched our unwashed hands to one another's lips, once we took pictures of the insides of our bodies, once we tapped messages to each other in languages we invented for when only silence and percussion would do, and we heard our tools scrape against one another, and a wild dog bleated somewhere far away. We walked. Our hearts beat. We laughed. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, gosh, I love Yeah, it's not often you get to hear sh schmoosh in a poem, for, for example. And, <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, love that. And, you know, stuff like smoosh is not something that would have had a place anywhere in Arrow. So it's really fun to be able to stretch myself and stretch my voice in various ways, both in this series and in the series of visual poems, which is a brand new endeavor for me. Well, Samita, thank you so much for talking with me today. I've loved thank it. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. <laughs> today on Living Writers, Samita Chakraborty. I'm Tia Hetzel. Until next time. WCBNFM on Arbor Archives. Original air date May 23, 